Welcome to a special series of EMS World Podcasts. I am Hillary Gates, Senior Editorial and Program Director for EMS World. The COVID-19 pandemic has challenged and impacted the EMS profession in unique and lasting ways. So what are the best practices for us as clinicians, leaders, managers, medical directors, and for EMS as a profession? EMS World is proud to bring you the latest information from our COVID-19 webinars, now available in audio-only podcast episodes. This episode, Fact Check, Top Docs Answer Your COVID-19 Questions, features Matt Levy and Asa Margolis and is sponsored by Boundtree. Hello, and welcome to today's EMS World Webinar, Fact Check, Top Docs Answer Your COVID-19 Questions. My name is Jonathan Bassett, Editorial Director at EMS World, and we're very happy to have everybody joining us today. We would like to thank Boundtree for sponsoring today's presentation. During the webinar, feel free to submit questions and comments for our speakers by using the question submission section on your screen. At the end of the presentation, we'll try to answer as many of your questions as we can in the time allowed. And today we are very excited to welcome our two speakers. Dr. Matthew Levy is Medical Director at Howard County, Maryland Department of Fire and Rescue Services. His career in EMS, uh, in EMS spans over 25 years and he began as an EMS provider. Dr. Levy is Associate Professor in the Division of Special Operations at the Department of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Levy maintains an active role in a variety of local, state, federal, and international elements related to emergency medical, tactical, and disaster care. Joining us also is Dr. Asa Margolis. Dr. Margolis is Associate Medical Director at Howard County Department of Fire and Rescue Services, as well as Medical Director for Johns Hopkins Lifeline Critical Care Transport Program. Dr. Margolis is Assistant Professor in the Division of Special Operations at the Department of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and he is currently Program Director of the Emergency Medical Services Fellowship at Johns Hopkins. And with those intros, gentlemen, I will turn it over to you. Thanks again for joining us today, and please take it away. Well, thank you very much, John. And, and, and again, I'd like to extend our own welcome and thanking everybody to take some time out of their day uh, to join us for this very important webinar. I think I speak for both myself, and this is Matt speaking, as well as for Asa, uh, when, we, when we say that we're actually very excited to sit down and be able to share with you our own experiences and lessons learned uh, with getting our EMS systems ready for and responding to COVID-19. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of lessons learned, and there will be a lot more to be learned. So without further ado, we'd like to get right into it. Before we dive into some content, though, we do need to just say a couple of disclaimers. First and foremost, any of the opinions that myself or ASA convey here are our own, and they don't represent those of any institution, agency, or body of government that we may represent or work with. The material that's covered here today is meant to be a summary, a highlight of discussion points to get you thinking and to help answer some of your questions. By no means is it meant to be comprehensive. For simplicity and consistency purposes, our recommendations that we'll share with you today come from the CDC website and from the CDC guidance. So that will be 
an important source for you uh, moving forward. And perhaps more practically speaking and most important, nothing that we say here today should supersede the recommendations or decisions of your EMS agency leadership or your medical director. John spent a few moments giving you some background about myself and ASA, and uh, really the only thing I would like to add is, is, is that is that as an EMS clinician, as an EMS medical director, I spent a lot of my time thinking about how our EMS systems can best serve the people of our communities through the eyes of our EMS clinicians. So as we look to building out programs, and in this case, building out response models to deal with an unprecedented pandemic, we, we, I really think long and hard about how do we affect positive change and provide the best care possible, even when the circumstances may seem very daunting. Asa, I'll turn it over to you if you want to say anything about yourself. Yeah, hi everybody. It's really great to be here and uh, I'm excited to join uh, Matt and talk about this very important topic today. Uh, also look forward to taking all of your questions and hopefully we'll provide you uh, with insight and help improve your knowledge base when it comes to this very important topic. So certainly look forward to getting started. Great. Thanks, Asa. So here's what we're going to do in the remaining few minutes. We're going to do just a quick brief overview of COVID-19. Uh, many of you are, are, are or have become very, very familiar with this term. We'll review some of the signs and symptoms. We'll highlight some EMS considerations that we think are really important for you to have uh, familiarity with. And, and then we'll dive into uh, the top 10 or so most frequently asked questions that ASA and I have received over the past few weeks as we look towards building out capabilities, capacities, and plans for this very unique situation. And at the end, there'll be time for a discussion. As I mentioned a moment ago, today's session, the source material is largely based off of CDC recommendations. And those recommendations are accessible for anyone. It's important to acknowledge that since this webinar will be available for people to view in the future, we need to make it clear that the recommendations that we're sharing are current as of the original date of this webinar. It's important to acknowledge that this information may very well change in the future. The good news is that the CDC website is updated frequently and you should check back there often. And, and again, we really need to stress uh, the important caveat that this information is guidance documents and guidance, and, and guidance information that your agency and leadership should take and make its own and adapt to its local need and mission. And so for that, we give ultimate discretion to your agency's medical director of leadership. With all that stuff said, let's spend a few minutes talking about COVID-19. First and foremost, what is COVID-19? COVID-19 is a viral illness that originated in the Wuhan city area of the Hubei province in China in December of 2019. It has very since grown to become a global pandemic. You may have heard or seen people compare COVID-19 to the flu, and I would caution you in doing so because it is a much more serious illness than the flu. It is, uh, has a much higher infectivity rate and it has a higher mortality rate as well. 
the virus is spread easily from person to person through respiratory droplets that can be produced when the infected person coughs or sneezes. And many more cases are being reported each day, uh, both around the world and, and now here in the U.S. Unfortunately, we've seen a, a dramatic rise in cases in the recent weeks. And as a result, states of emergency have been declared at the local, state, and federal level. We are anticipating the need for significantly higher EMS and healthcare resources as the numbers of these patients with symptoms continue to increase. There's also a serious concern from a clinical perspective regarding the number of people who might require hospitalization and ICU resources. Regarding the signs and symptoms of COVID-19, we'd like to emphasize a couple points. First and foremost, the symptoms can include fever, cough, congestion, shortness of breath, new body aches, and influenza-like symptoms. Most commonly, the symptoms encountered are fever and cough. And these symptoms can begin anywhere between two to 14 days following an exposure. Now, about 80% of those people who will get infected have a mild to moderate illness. However, in some cases, that remaining 20% of people who are infected with COVID-19 can develop a pneumonia or a serious life-threatening condition that we call acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. And it's that subset of the population that we worry so much about because of their ability or the concern that they will tax our regions and our country's critical care and ICU resources. You may have heard the term PUI before, for persons under investigation for COVID-19. As of the date of this webinar, the very practical definition for a PUI is any patient with a fever or shortness of breath or flu-like symptoms, and they can include sore throat, congestion, cough, new body aches, or GI symptoms. Now, you may be saying to yourself, wait a minute, a few weeks ago, it was fever and those symptoms, and, and you would be correct. Over the past few weeks, the definition has evolved and broadened, and that's a real important thing to note because some of our EMS clinician colleagues um, who were dialed into this early on recognized uh, that, and, and as this has evolved, we have broadened the case definition uh, for our PUI, and so more people meet that criteria. Other folks have said, wait a minute, what do I do with someone who's got a fever in a nursing home and there's another cause for that fever? Well, that's a, a pretty hard thing uh, to reconcile uh, sometimes in the field without all the right information. So we would encourage you to use the very broad definition of fever um, or shortness of breath or flu-like symptoms in your definition of a PUI to maximally protect yourself and your crew and the patient. Remember, you only need to have one of these symptoms now to be considered a PUI. And there are a lot of response considerations that we have to think about in order to prepare and be ready to handle patients suffering from a pandemic. It may sound intuitive, and, and you've heard these, these words before, but being in an optimal state of personal health, rest, hydration, sleep, and nutrition are really important Remember, everybody, we're dealing with a viral illness here, 
and being in a state of, of, of well-restedness and, and, and in a state of, of optimal health will help your body protect itself. It's important that you monitor yourself and your crew for symptoms and be familiar with the PPE that you have accessible to use. When responding to calls, maintain a heightened degree of situational awareness. EMD and dispatch, or let me say dispatch centers around the country have uh, incorporated PUI screening questions into their EMD algorithms. However, they may not identify all the PUIs. And there are other response instructions that are being advocated for on a more local and regional level. In some cases, EMS agencies have begun asking their dispatch centers to instruct those patients who are ambulatory to meet the crews outside to minimize the additional chances of exposure of the crew going inside a structure. During the call, a great rule of thumb is to maintain six feet of distance until the person's PUI status can be determined. Bring the minimal equipment necessary and remember to have a mask that you can place on the patient as well. It's also important to acknowledge that you really want to minimize the number of responders on these calls so we, to, to those that are absolutely needed to care for the patient. Um, that will help minimize the chances of, of additional individuals being exposed. There have been a numerous um, protocol modifications and departures from the way we typically do business uh, in EMS, from changes to CPR, in some cases moving towards a hands-only uh, compressions-only CPR with passive oxygenation through changes to airway management um, and a, a being much more strict about the use of things like positive pressure ventilation and nebulizers. It's also important to acknowledge that after the call, equipment needs to be decontaminated in a safe and proper manner. Personal hygiene, hand hygiene has to be stressed here. And documentation of the call is really important to include who was actually on the call should there be a need for health officials to contact the crew members later on for follow-up. Now, with this brief overview out of the way, we'd like to switch gears a little bit to some of the more common questions that we've been asked over the past few weeks. One of the big questions in everyone's mind are what are some of the best practices for PPE as it relates to donning and doffing and other unique circumstances surrounding EMS operations while wearing PPE? There's a whole lot to this question and we're not gonna be able to cover it all in today's session. In fact, it's probably worthy of its own webinar. But what I wanna emphasize is the following, is as of the date of this webinar, the CDC still recommend N95 or higher masks if they are available as, as the preferred means of respiratory protection for those calls where there's a concern for aerosol generation or for high-risk procedures. Face masks may be an alternative that's acceptable until the supply chain is restored. But just remember that that, that alternative is, should be a secondary option, not the primary. We really can't emphasize enough how important eye protection is here. It's not just having protective lenses, but eye protection that will fully protect the eyes and wrap around as well. Um, the eyes as mucous membranes are a source of possible entry of a pathogen to the body. Gloves, gowns, 
baby shoe covers if that's an option in your agency. And, and the necessary protective equipment are very, very important. And that should be equipment that you should be familiar with and be trained on how to use. Doffing the PPE or the act of taking off the PPE is another important thing to mention because this is oftentimes how healthcare workers contaminate themselves. It's in the process of taking the gear off they get into trouble. So we highly advocate for using your partner as a buddy to monitor yourself and then you can flip roles so that, so that you can be extra careful with taking the gear off. We receive questions about fit testing requirements. And, and one of those questions is that, well, do I no longer need to be fit tested? Well, prior fit testing is still, is still important. But if you haven't been fit tested uh, this past year or in recent time, uh, there's some relaxation of those requirements. But it still is important that you, you're wearing equipment that you've been fit tested on that you know is safe and works for you. What about the reuse of equipment? Well, and the reuse of certain masks? Uh, that is certainly something that we're encountering uh, due to supply issues and the need to maintain ma maximal protection for our personnel. At a minimum, it's important to know that if that mask becomes wet or contaminated or damaged in any way, it should be taken offline. As I mentioned in the other slide a moment ago, it's very important that we also um, get source control on these patients by placing a surgical mask over um, on their face. And even if they have a needle cannula or an oxygen mask, we want to do everything we can to minimize respiratory secretions from getting into the air in the vicinity of the patient. So having a surgical mask for your patient is very important. You've probably heard it said before, but it's worthy of repeating again that N95 masks do not belong on patients. Uh, they can increase the work of breathing and, and they actually um, they're, they are not recommended for patient use. So a simple surgical mask or droplet mask is what goes on the patient. After the call, PPE should be disposed of into red biohazard bags and disposed of properly. And if you are going to be in a situation where you have to reuse PPE uh, due to operating constraints, and in some cases that's, that, that's completely understandable, um, it's important that you visually inspect the PPE to ensure that it is safe and in good working order. I'm going to turn it over to Asa for our next question about decontamination, because we've received a lot of questions about this. Asa? Yeah, hi again, everybody. Matt, thanks for that uh, great overview and intro, and thanks for handling that first question. So, as you said, the next question we have received really gets into what are best practices for deconning the ambulance after transporting a potential PUI patient? Uh, also questions about what do I do for all the equipment in the ambulance and what steps should I take to disinfect the linens, uniforms, and other things that I utilize on various calls, pens, uh, clipboards, and how about clothing and where do I wash my uniform? So sort of taking this from a uh, step-down approach, uh, the first thing to remember is that after transportation of a patient, um, the general recommendation out there is to make sure that you're leaving the doors of the transport vehicle open to allow for sufficient air changes to remove the potentially infectious particles. Now, generally speaking, the time to complete the transfer of your patient to the receiving facility and then to subsequently complete all of the documentation should provide 
sufficient air changes to remove these potentially infectious particles. However, the recommended length of time to elapse for an ambulance to sit before any of our EMS clinicians should then enter without airborne respiratory protection is again outlined by CDC guidance and can be found in Appendix B, AIR. So this is something that uh, our EMS clinicians can certainly reference and take a look at and really get into the specifics of length of time needed uh, for certain air changes to occur. Now, after the doors have been left open, after you have done your patient uh, turnover, uh, after you've completed your paperwork, you're now coming back to your transport vehicle to do the cleaning. So when you're cleaning the vehicle, again, the door should continue to remain open and the EMS clinician should also be now wearing a disposable gown, gloves, as well as a face shield with eye protection when they're doing the cleaning of the vehicle. This is really important to remember. So what do you use to clean the vehicle with? Well, luckily again, uh, the EPA and CDC have put out a list of different products that are approved and recommended for use against coronavirus. Uh, and if you're interested, again, this list could also be found on the CDC website, so you could reference it and make sure that you're using the information uh, that has been uh, shown to be effective. And what are you cleaning? Well, clearly all surfaces that may have come in contact with the patient or any material contaminated during patient care, and we're talking about the stretcher, the rails on the stretcher, uh, the rails on top of the ambulance, um, control panels, floors, walls, uh, other work surfaces, your pen, the clipboard you're writing on, uh, the tablet or toughbook you're using should be thoroughly clean and disinfected with this EPA-registered hospital-grade disinfectant, uh, basically in accordance with whatever the product label is saying. You wanna make sure that you're cleaning and disinfecting all durable medical equipment. Um, getting down to the other sort of element of this question is what am I doing with um, linens? What am I doing with my uniform? So first and foremost, all linen should be properly disposed of uh, in the appropriate bin at the hospital. Please avoid shaking out the linens when you're taking them off the stretcher uh, or when you're removing them from the patient. Uh, ideally, all of your uniforms should be washed if possible while at work. You want to avoid bringing uniforms home and potentially contaminating uh, yourself in your own home or anybody else who lives with you. So if at all possible, try to make sure all of your uniforms are laundered at work. This brings me to the next important point, which is we should really be entering work in a set of clothes, changing into our uniform, changing out of our uniform before we leave work into the set of clothes that we came with. This way, we're gonna avoid any sort of contamination of our vehicle uh, or more so our home or people with whom we live. So those are all really important points to remember. Uh, Matt, uh, I can turn it back over to you if you'd like for the next question. Great, so thanks. That, that's a tremendous amount of information and, and you broke it down really, really well. You know, one of the other questions that, that we received, uh, and this I think um, 
goes back a little bit to the earlier days of the pandemic, which is where do we triage COVID-19 patients to? Well, suffice it to say, this has evolved and unfortunately not in a good way. Uh, we are now in a what we would call a catastrophic health emergency declaration phase um, in many places, and certainly a, certainly that has changed the landscape of this. Um, earlier in the pandemic, there were special pathogen receiving hospitals that some EMS systems or some states were using uh, or facilities that were identified to be the primary receiving point for these patients. We've seen that shift. Um, we're now dealing with a global pandemic um, and um, the doctoring of the closest appropriate facility for that patient, I think really, really holds um, true here. It's important though, that you know the capability of the facilities in your area of operation, in your jurisdiction. You know what types of patients they can receive uh, from a global perspective, uh, and also uh, where that patient might be best served. So I think um, that as we continue this discussion about triage, um, it's also worthy of noting that hospitals themselves are adapting their own policies and practices to manage influxes of COVID patients. So not just knowing where you're gonna go, but what to expect at the hospitals you arrive is really important. And if you do not have an active liaison with your local hospital or someone in your organization doesn't have a liaison role, I'd highly encourage you to reach out and establish that or figure out a way to build, uh, to build that capacity um, because it's a great way to ensure good communication between our EMS pre-hospital team and the hospital-based team. Um, because the last thing we wanna do is have a crew show up uh, with a patient who's a PUI and not know where to go or what to do once they arrive at a facility. Asa, I'm gonna turn it back over to you for this next question um, because we've had lots of questions about what constitutes an exposure and what does this mean? And how do we know if we've been exposed or we've been on a call? So I'll, I'll turn this one over to you for your thoughts. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. This is something that is on everybody's mind uh, in terms of, you know, what does it mean to be exposed? What is an exposure? Are all exposures equal? And uh, hopefully we could provide some additional guidance on this for all of you. So I'd say first and foremost, uh, we should really have a low threshold for evaluating symptoms and testing our symptomatic healthcare providers, uh, including our EMS clinicians, particularly those who really fall into this high and medium risk category, uh, as I will further describe in this slide here. So another important thing to remember is that EMS agencies in consultation with public health authorities uh, should use their clinical judgment as well as the principles outlined by the CDC guidance uh, to ask questions and determine who is at risk and what sort of restrictions, if any, need to occur. Uh, the CDC has put out a number in terms of uh, their uh, contact from the emergency operations center. So if there are questions, uh, they can be accessed there for additional help. So first, I think it's important that all healthcare providers should really monitor themselves for a variety of signs and symptoms. Uh, so these are a lot of the symptoms that 
Matt, you had described earlier, which are concerning for possible coronavirus infection, which include cough, shortness of breath, sore throat, new muscle aches, diarrhea. Uh, and they should also consider taking their temperature twice daily to determine whether or not they are developing a fever or have developed a fever. If they have yes to any of these questions, there should be an identified person to contact within their agency to communicate this to, for them to get further guidance and instruction as to whether a medical evaluation is needed and or whether testing is warranted at this phase, or they should go back to continuously monitor themselves for development of additional symptoms. I think we need to really highlight that proper adherence to our currently recommended infection control practices should really protect our healthcare providers that have prolonged close contact with patients that are infected with COVID-19. However, we know that everything is not perfect and to account for inconsistencies in use or adherence to these guidelines uh, that may have in fact resulted in unrecognized exposure, our healthcare providers should really continue to still perform self-monitoring. So let's define a few terms because I think it's important to have an understanding of what these terms mean. So a close contact, what is a close contact? Well, it's someone who is within six feet of a person with COVID-19 for a prolonged period of time. And a prolonged period of time has been designated as minutes at this point. Or having unprotected direct contact with infectious secretions from a patient with COVID-19. Both of those are considered to be under the definition of close contact. Let's get into some definition of risk. So high risk exposures refer to our healthcare providers who have had, again, this prolonged contact Long close contact with patients with COVID-19 who the patient itself was not wearing a face mask while the healthcare provider's nose, mouth, eyes were then exposed to these potentially infectious virus particles. Specifically, we know that procedures that generate aerosols uh, and procedures that have to do with the respiratory system and airway management are most likely to be poorly controlled and have high risk for exposure. Looking at medium risk exposure, this is generally, this generally includes healthcare providers who have had prolonged close contact with patients with COVID-19 who they were at this point wearing a mask, but the healthcare providers, nose, mouth, or eyes were exposed to potentially infectious virus particles. Lastly, we consider low-risk exposure. So this is when you have close contact to a patient who, again, like the medium risk, was wearing a mask. But in this case, the healthcare provider, they may have not been wearing gloves or a gown. That would constitute a low-risk exposure. As I had initially said, it's important to consider both high and medium-risk exposures that place healthcare providers at significantly more risk than low-risk exposures themselves for developing the exposure, for developing the infection. And therefore, the recommendations for active monitoring uh, and work restrictions are generally the same when it comes to both high and medium risk exposures. So our EMS systems, along with our public health agencies, will determine essentially what monitoring needs to occur 
and whether or not quarantine, which is something we're going to get into a little bit later, must take place. Again, this is not going to be uniform for every agency out there. This is going to vary depending on one, the type of exposure, two, the local health, uh, sorry, the local public health recommendations, and three, really the depth of the available current workforce. So there are certain agencies that may or could consider allowing asymptomatic healthcare providers who have had an exposure to a COVID-19 patient to continue to work, of course, with a mask on at all times after other options for improving staffing have been exhausted and, of course, in consultation with their occupational health program or public health agency. Uh, and again, you know, each agency should have in place what sort of reporting uh, structure exists if a patient who is transported by the agency comes back positive. How will the EMS clinician, clinicians be notified? Does this occur through the hospital link back to an infection control officer in the agency? Does this occur through the local public health department? But this stuff should be outlined as well. This is really important to maintain that link of information to ultimately get that information back to our EMS clinicians. Okay, so hopefully that answers that question. Uh, looking at uh, the next question we have, uh, gets into really special considerations. Uh, and special considerations as it relates to pediatric patients, uh, special considerations in terms of what, how we should be managing cardiac arrest patients. Uh, what about those who we suspect to have an opioid toxidrome and require naloxone? How do I handle the unconscious patient? What do I do for invasive procedures? These are all things that we've also received questions on. So, Matt, if it's okay with you, I'll uh, try to handle this question as well. So, starting off with our pediatric patients, while the data certainly at this point uh, tells us that our pediatric patients have a less severe course of disease, they should be managed the exact same way if they're a PUI as any adult patient meaning we should be taking all the same appropriate PPE precautions for our pediatric patients. And also remembering that the family member who is likely caring for this ill child is also and should also be considered as a PUI. Matt, you had alluded to earlier in the uh, introductory slides that we are starting to manage these cardiac arrest patients differently. And I think it's important to remember that a cardiac arrest patient or a patient who's an extremist, or a patient who's requiring active resuscitation, or a patient who is unresponsive, all share the common theme that we don't have enough information to definitively say they are not a PUI. And therefore, we really need to consider them as PUIs. So when patients are requiring active airway management, we know that this is a time where it's most likely to spread these infectious virus particles. So one way that we're trying to mitigate that is by really avoiding bad valve mass ventilation in the cardiac arrest patient in favor of hands-only CPR with application of a non-rebreather mask at 15 liters per minute for passive oxygenation. Another option would be to rapidly place a supraglottic airway because this would again avoid bad valve mass ventilation and potentially aerosolizing more of these infectious virus particles to all of our crew members and any bystanders that happen to be there. 
Uh, for those patients who we suspect an opioid toxidrome and that it would require naloxone, it may be appropriate to consider IM or intramuscular injection of naloxone rather than intranasal uh, administration of naloxone. Because again, you're staying away from the airway and you're decreasing the chance of aerosolizing any of these infectious particles. So as I said before, in any of our unconscious or semi-conscious patients, patients that are an extremist, or the common theme of not being able to provide sufficient information to definitively say they're not a PUI, should be treated as PUIs until other information can be gathered to say they are not. In terms of our invasive procedures, things like IOs, uh, for sure, any airway procedures, we should be doing in maximal PPE protection, again, to protect all of our EMS clinicians and our workforce. There's also been a, some guidance given on patients in respiratory distress. So all of our EMS clinicians uh, that have been doing this for a while, we have seen the advent of CPAP and how that's really a game changer in avoiding endotracheal intubation in patients who are in respiratory distress. As we have been saying, things including CPAP or BiPAP or anything that really provides this non-invasive positive pressure ventilation has a high incidence of aerosolizing virus particles. And again, we want to avoid this. Similarly, as we typically give NEBs for people that are in respiratory distress that have bronchoconstriction, nebulizing our albuterol will also increase the risk of aerosolizing these particles. And we should seriously consider using meter dose inhalers or MDIs for administration of albuterol rather than our nebulizers. Patients who are, we are delivering oxygen to, whether it's via a nasal cannula, uh, for our critical care colleagues that are listening to this, high flow nasal cannula, we should be placing still a surgical mask over the nasal cannula. Ideally, we should also probably think about doing this over our non-rebreather. Yes, they have a mask over their face, but remember there are still exhalation ports over the sides of the non-rebreather, and as the patient is forcibly coughing, they could disperse the virus particles out of these exhalation ports as well. So for maximal protection for an EMS clinicians, placing a surgical face mask over the non-rebreather is also a good idea. Getting back to our critical care colleagues, again, uh, we should really consider avoiding the positive pressure ventilation. However, using high-flow nasal cannula can be considered, but again, I want to emphasize two important points. One, a surgical mask should be placed over that high-flow nasal cannula, uh, and two, running it at flow rates of less than 40 uh, or less than 40 to 60 liters per minute is generally a little bit more safe in terms of lessening the chance of aerosolizing particles if that's possible. Additionally, best practices uh, are recommending that we are intubating these patients early for a couple of reasons. One, we're avoiding the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, so they're gonna to need to be intubated earlier. Two, we wanna be able to intubate these patients under the most controlled settings possible to limit the need for exposure and repeat attempts. And when we're intubating these patients, we should really consider using video laryngoscopy rather than direct laryngoscopy because we are not gonna be as on top of the patient and 
if you're wearing uh, peppers or if you're wearing uh, face masks, sometimes it's easier to get a better view of the airway uh, using a video laryngoscope rather than using direct laryngoscopy. So I know that was a uh, you know loaded question uh, with a lot of different parts, uh, but hopefully that's helpful in breaking down a lot of important special circumstances and considerations that uh, our EMS clinicians are facing on a daily basis. Thanks so much, Asa. Definitely a lot of information. And, and as I think everyone's beginning to realize, um, the details really do matter with this. And understanding how we're going to do good patient care while maximally protecting our crews and minimizing additional exposure is really important. And those circles can overlap. Uh, and, and you did a great job of highlighting some of those ways. Um, in, in the remaining t uh, time we have left before we open up the panel for some questions and answers, um, just a couple more things that have come up along the way just to, just to touch base on. Um, Asa, do you want to break this down for us? Because we see these terms used a lot back and forth, quarantine versus isolation, and nowadays they seem to be used interchangeably, but they are different. You want to you wanna unpackage this for us? Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks. And you're 100% correct. Uh, these terms we have, we have heard a lot, both in the uh, mainstream media, uh, in conversation with uh, healthcare providers. And as you noted, uh, while these terms are sometimes used interchangeably, they definitely have very distinct meanings and the words themselves have very important implications. So it is critically important that we keep them straight. So. Overall, isolation and quarantine help protect the public by preventing exposure to people who have had exposure to a contagious disease or may have a contagious disease. So again, further breaking this down, quarantine itself separates and restricts the movement of people who were exposed to the contagious disease to see if they become sick. These people do not, and I emphasize do not, have symptoms. They have been exposed or potentially exposed, but they do not yet have symptoms. This is different than isolation. So isolation separates sick people with the contagious disease from people who are not sick. And one way to remember this is isolate the ill, I-I. So when we're talking about isolation, the individual has symptoms or signs of that contagious disease, and we're isolating that person. Again, we're talking about quarantine. People who are, we are quarantined have had an exposure or a potential exposure, but they do not have the symptoms. Hopefully, that helps to break it down or just reinforce these important terms for our EMS clinicians. Um, it looks like we're up for another question. Um, in terms of exposure and return to work guidelines, which is also a, a really important topic and something that uh, people have had a ton of questions on. Uh, Matt, you want to uh, handle that one? Yeah, I'll certainly give it a try. I'll tell you, there's a lot of information here and there's a lot of different scenarios. So we'll try to walk through this uh, as systematically as possible and and give you just some some big picture um, perspective on this. And again, uh, as as we've reiterated several times during the webinar, uh, the source material on the CDC website is available and can help you with some of this, particularly for the return to work strategies on the right side of the screen. But let's start with the left side of your screen where we talk about 
the individual, the EMS clinician who's had an exposure, but they're not having any symptoms. And, and one of the questions we've gotten a lot is, well, do I need to be tested? And, and the answer to that is a, is a more um, complicated one, but, but quite at this moment in time, um, the, the, the notion is, is that for those people who are exposed, as we mentioned earlier on, we really need uh, to understand the risk of the exposure. Uh, and depending upon that risk, uh, if it's a high-risk exposure, there are circumstances where, where quarantine may be recommended. Uh, if it's a moderate to low risk, it's usually going to be medical monitoring. Um, but one thing that, that we have uh, determined or that has seemed to prevail through this is, is that the role of testing someone who's asymptomatic hasn't really been shown to be of any help at this point in time. Um, so, so now let's transition that to someone who's exposed who does have symptoms, um, but they were tested and the test is negative. Um, so, so one of the first things we think about now as a physician, as a clinician, when I, when I see a test is negative, I often want to wonder, is there another condition that could be causing this, uh, these symptoms and do we need to evaluate that? But let's, let's take that scenario aside for a second. Um, when someone who is exposed and symptomatic has a negative test, they'll probably find themselves following a strategy that allows um, for monitoring of symptoms uh, for a period of time until they become asymptomatic. And, and we'll, we'll get into that. Um, an example of that would be the non-test-based strategy uh, that may be used um, to determine when someone's safe to return to work. Now, if someone is exposed and they are symptomatic, um, and they have a positive test, and we have a confirmed positive person, when can they return to work? Well, if we're following the test-based strategy, that's going to require um, a certain amount of retesting to occur. And that can be challenging, particularly because uh, one of the things we've seen is that access to testing itself is intrinsically challenging at this moment in time. And we're, we know that the scientific and medical communities are working as fast as they can on getting more tests out and available. Um, but that the ability to test and retest uh, may be challenging uh, for some EMS jurisdictions and operational programs. Are there special considerations for the testing of public safety personnel? And, and the answer to that is, yeah, healthcare workers and EMS clinicians are, are often given priority for testing. They're often uh, in a triaging algorithm of who gets tested. They're also uh, elevate, they're often elevated to the higher end um, or in some cases, the highest end um, of getting tested so that we can um, then get those people back online as appropriate if they're negative. However, um, uh, it, it's also important to note that, that we are dealing with a disease, a pandemic disease that is now spread in the community. And so what that means is that, yes, you may have an exposure at work, but you may also have exposures elsewhere in the community. Uh, to and from work at the store, and so on and so forth. And as a result of that, it's been recommended that agencies implement screening programs to determine if employees are ill before they're coming to work, or certainly if they become ill while at work. Bottom line, if someone is febrile, they have a fever, and they're having symptoms of COVID, they shouldn't be doing active patient care. Um, if they have a fever. 
um, and and they have to uh, wait until a period of time, which we'll get into in a second, but when it's safe for them to return to work. Are there any responders who shouldn't be working right now, who shouldn't be allowed uh, to be doing patient care? Well, the answer to that is also evolving. One of the things we know is that those folks who are above the age of 60, um, those folks who have comorbid conditions such as diabetes and heart disease, other types of uh, immunocompromised states, they are at a higher risk for having a bad outcome if they were to develop COVID-19. And as a result, um, those individuals should really be encouraged to talk with their healthcare providers. I'd also be remiss uh, if I didn't mention pregnant personnel as well. Uh, most agencies have a light or modified duty program for, for, for pregnant responders or pregnant EMS clinicians, um, but there is some evolving concern about risk for pregnancy. That's, that's still yet to be defined, uh, but it would be another thing that I want um, that individual to talk with their health provider about the risk for them engaging in EMS clinical activities. Now, getting very concrete for a second in terms of the strategies that are currently articulated for returning to work. The CDC lists a test-based strategy and a non-test-based strategy. And regardless of which strategy is going to be used, it's important to note that first and foremost, the individual is excluded from work until they have a resolution of fever. Uh, and that is important to note without the use of fever-reducing medicines, okay, and improvement may not be complete resolution in their cough or shortness of breath, but improvement in their cough and shortness of breath. Now, in the testing algorithm, um, they also need to have two or at least two consecutive specimens, one after another, collected greater than 24 hours apart that are negative. And, and that's what would need to, quote unquote, clear someone by testing strategy. The non-testing strategy looks a little more like this. They have to be free of fever for at least 72 hours without the use of fever-reducing medicines and have an improvement in their respiratory symptoms, such as their, you know, their cough is getting better or they're less short of breath. And seven days have to have passed since the symptoms first appeared. So practically speaking, there's a lot of numbers and a lot of math there. What does that all mean? To me, that means if someone is symptomatic on day number one, they don't go to work. Day two, three, and by day three, maybe they're feeling better, okay? Um, by the earliest they could go back to work on day seven is they'd have to be fever-free and fever free without meds on days five, uh, four, five, and six, or five, six, and seven to go back to work. Now, as you can see, what they're trying to do there is afford a, a window of buffering, a window of time to make sure that person isn't getting worse but getting better. And even when they do go back to work um, after day seven, uh, there are specific work restrictions that need to be followed. And some of those are actually very challenging for us in the EMS community uh, to adhere to because one of those is not being around immunocompromised patients. Well, that can be a challenge because we don't get to pick who calls 911. So, so there, are other, there are some implementation challenges here. Uh, another example would be um, the recommendation that people be wearing a mask for as long as they're coughing and at least, or at least 14 days, but as long as they're coughing, so it could extend past there. So as a result of that, 
what we find is um, is that can be challenging for people working a 24-hour shift. So that, that's a, a, as, as simple and as concrete as I can kind of focus on the exposure and return to work stuff. Uh, above all, uh, it's important to know what your expectations are from your employer and your occupational health team um, so that you can know uh, where you will fit into all this and what will happen. Uh, and this stuff is being actively refined and worked through by many organizations. So that's that's the summary of that. I think our last slide before we open up for questions really is going to focus on uh, next steps and where do we go with this pandemic illness and what does the horizon look like uh, from a treatment and a vaccine perspective. So I'm going to turn that one back to you, Asa, so you can give us a quick uh, breakdown as to where we're at with vaccine and other medication development. Great. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, this is also something that is certainly on everybody's mind and has been getting a ton of attention lately in the media as well. So hopefully I can help sort of refocus uh, what some of the literature is saying out there and where we are currently uh, in terms of our uh, advancements with pharmacologic therapy and development of vaccine. So let's start with pharmacologic therapy. So it's important to remember that currently there are no agents approved by the US FDA for treatment of COVID-19. At the time of this webinar, there is minimal available evidence from randomized controlled trials, which we in medicine usually like to get our most robust data from, to support recommendations for the use of any specific pharmacologic treatment for patients with COVID-19. What we do have is existing data that's mostly drawn from in vitro or lab stuff, uh, in non-randomized studies or extrapolated from animal models of related coronaviruses that we have seen. To date, the only published randomized control trial results are from a study out of China looking at um, a drug called Kaletra, which is used to treat HIV infection. And this study is published in the New England Journal of Medicine and unfortunately, it found no evidence of benefit in patients with COVID-19. Another medication that you may have heard about is Rindinsevir. So this is an antiviral agent with activity against Ebola uh, in humans, as well as other coronaviruses in non-human primates. Currently, there is an active randomized placebo-controlled trial enrolling patients so I would say look out for more information about this in the uh, months to come. Moving down to a, uh, a third option, uh, we have certainly heard a fair amount recently about two medications, one hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil uh, and chloroquine. So again, uh, there is really currently no definitive data available on the effectiveness or comparison of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine for the treatment of COVID-19. Uh, generally speaking, hydroxychloroquine, also known as Plaquenil, is preferred due to better tolerability and lower toxicity, uh, and is often the one that is prescribed by physicians if certain indications are met and that patient is being actively monitored under a physician's care. Um, Guidance, again, thus far has been limited. Uh, it's limited based on, again, in vitro studies as well as use in France and Italy. Um, that this treatment with hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine 
may result in a more rapid reduction in viral shedding and may be associated with improvement in clinical outcomes. Um, additionally, there has been discussion about administration of hydroxychloroquine in combination with azithromycin, uh, which is typically known as our ZPAC. Um, again, the current evidence comes from small, non-randomized observational studies of, again, about 30, 36 hospitalized patients with COVID-19, comparing 14 patients who were prescribed hydroxychloroquine alone, six patients who got hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, and 16 patients that prescribed neither. Um, the results do suggest hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin leads to faster reduction in the virus. But again, this is somewhat dependent on taking a deep dive into the statistics and how they were done and how the conclusions were actually drawn. So for now, what I think is that a lot of these protocols on who is appropriate for hydroxychloroquine, uh, who may be appropriate for hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin is likely going to be institutional um, specific. And if people are interested in that, uh, you know, getting guidance from the specific institution that they work with as well. Uh, I, I do really want to point out, this is extremely important, that these medications, particularly hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, they, they have a very small therapeutic window. So there is definitely the potential for harm in these uh, for harm using these medications. And people who are not being actively monitored by a physician as an inpatient should not just start taking these medications because they heard that it could be beneficial. We have seen serious, serious toxicity and death as a result of some of these medications when they are taken in a non-monitored situation. Specifically, they can have fairly profound cardiac toxicity leading to fatal arrhythmias. So again, I wanna point out that yes, there is a lot of developing research and recommendations coming out using these medications, but above all, they should only be given under the guidance of the physician who's actively monitoring patients taking these medications. Um, I'm gonna switch over to uh, vaccines um, to help us conclude. So again, um, just like with uh, pharmacologic therapy, uh, there is no current FDA-approved vaccine for COVID-19 at this time. Scientists are working very, very hard and as quickly as possible to develop a vaccine, but realistically, we're at least a year out. Uh, we'll probably likely know within the next six to nine months if we have one, but again, we're then going to need to upscale production of this. So I think it's also important to remember when we're considering vaccines and pharmacologic therapy that developing and testing a vaccine is different from developing and then trialing or testing an antiviral agent on someone who has an infection. If you are giving somebody an antiviral treatment in a trial um, for, again, COVID-19, you have an endpoint which you are going to reach quickly. Uh, either it's working for the patient and they're getting better or it's not working for the patient and you have this definitive endpoint. But with a vaccine, you don't reach this endpoint immediately. 
because you really have to observe the immune response over time. And especially for the efficacy phase of these trials, you have to have enough people with naturally, that are naturally exposed to the virus to determine whether the vaccine prevents disease. So currently, we're in phase one of this clinical trial, the vaccine that has shown promise in animal models. Uh, this first trial in humans is an open-label trial that has enrolled about 40, 45 healthy adult volunteers between the ages of 18 to 55 uh, over about a six-week period, and the first participant received this investigational vaccine mid-March. So again, phase one of the study, uh, the purpose is to evaluate different doses of the experimental vaccine for safety and its ability to induce an immune response in the participants. Ultimately, it's going to need to progress to phase two, phase three, and then we'll get FDA approval. So unfortunately, we're about a year out, um, but I can assure you that our scientists and research community are working as fast as possible to get this out uh, to the public. Thank you so much to Dr. Levy and Dr. Margolis. A lot of information to digest today. We, uh, first one here is, um, how does an area or region determine when EMS providers should consider all patients as potentially having COVID-19 and, uh, and therefore uh, don eye and respiratory PPE in addition to standard BSI and PPE? So, John, this is Matt. Um, I'll jump in and take that one. It's, it's a fantastic question, and, and I think it's one that needs to be answered in conjunction with local health officials and uh, local surveillance and understanding what's going on. I think there are many places in the country that are already moving towards that model, and I could certainly speak locally uh, to my part of the country where uh, that's becoming more and more common. So um, that's a, that, the part of the, the, that is a multifactorial answer. Uh, involves good intel and good data and good coordination with your health officials, uh, but certainly not an unreasonable thing to be considering at this point. Thank you, Matt. Uh, next up, has it been determined yet the maximum time period that the virus can remain on different services, surfaces, sorry, acknowledging that different types of surfaces may retain it longer than others? Yeah, hey, this is Asa. I'll be happy to answer that question. So this is certainly variable, and as the question uh, states, it's really variable depending on the type of surface. But overall, we're saying on average three to four days. However, there's even some evidence out there that had earlier suggested that it could live on surfaces, non-porous surfaces, up to nine days. Uh, but I would say on average about three or four days on surfaces. So it's really important to keep in mind uh, because we can certainly touch surfaces and then touch our face, our mouth, our eyes, and then transmit the virus to ourselves that way. Okay, we have a question here from Samir who's listening in. This has been in the news lately. Symptoms can also include gastrointestinal symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. These seem not to be getting proper attention. Any comments or feedback on that? Sure, it's Asa again. I'll, I could handle it. Uh, Samir, excellent point. Uh, you are definitely correct. So GI symptoms overall are less frequently discussed. But certainly new data suggests that almost, depending on what you look at, half of the patients out of certain Chinese studies had diarrhea, and the presence of GI symptoms was associated with worse disease outcome. So I think it is really important for our clinicians out there to also be asking about these GI symptoms. 
in addition to all the other viral URI symptoms and fever that we are accustomed to asking about. Um, you know, having GI symptoms makes sense because this virus binds uh, via the ACE2 receptor or the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptor that is both located on uh, alveolar cells within our lungs, but also on intestinal epithelial cells. So that's why you can get these GI symptoms, as Samir, you correctly pointed out. So thank you very much for bringing that up. Quite a few questions coming in on PPE and, uh, and disposal. What type of trash container is recommended for proper disposal of contaminated uh, equipment, gowns, et cetera? Uh, do you recommend a biohazard bag or just regular trash? So this is Matt, I'll, I'll try to answer this one. As resources allow and, you know, everyone acknowledges we are in the midst of a disaster, um, I, would, I would lean towards the biohazard um, disposal type processes like we would normally. Um, if we get to the point where there are no longer those resources, I think we have to adjust to what we can do. Uh, but in general, for dealing with contaminated equipment, gowns, masks, uh, we should treat them as such. Uh, it's actually, uh, John, it's really important that everyone acknowledges that one of the greatest risks we have as EMS providers and clinicians is in the secondary contamination that can occur as we're doffing or taking this gear off and handling contaminated uh, equipment and gear. So, so everyone, please don't let your guard down when you're doing that stuff. It, you have to treat it as seriously as you would as, as if you were taking care of the patient. Okay, and from James, we have a question. How should I disinfect my Tyvek suit and face shield after patient encounters, and can I use it over and over again? And a follow-up to that, uh, is there any way to disinfect N95 masks? This is Asa again. I can answer that question. Um, so, great question. In terms of Tyvek suits uh, and face shields, the first answer to the question is there can't be any visible contaminant uh, on the suit. If there's visible contaminant or if it's soiled, uh, it cannot be re reutilized. So after a patient encounter and you have your Tyvek suit on and there's no evidence of it being soiled, uh, it can be wiped down. It can be wiped down with things like sandy cloths. So the, uh, we call them the purple wipes uh, are effective. And you can just take the purple wipes and you can wipe your face shield, you can wipe your Tyvek suit. But I strongly recommend that there is somebody else there with you who is also in proper PPE who can wipe the backside of you. Because obviously you can't reach around to the back of your head and your back, and that area could have obviously contaminant on it as well. So again, sandy cloths, purple top wipes, um, and make sure that somebody's able to wipe the back as well. And I, I just want to point out that all of these different sandy wipes, they come with different colors, so purple, red, green, they are not all the same and not all of them work uh, and are effective against coronavirus. So please, again, take a look at the EPA site uh, and there's a way to get on there to find out uh, which one of these is effective uh, in killing the uh, coronavirus. Uh, taking the second part of that question, uh, there's really no great way to dis disinfect an N95 mask. Once these masks um, get wet, they're no longer effective. Uh, so if you're taking, you know, like a, a cloth wipe that's obviously uh, wet and you're wiping it over the mask, uh, that becomes problematic. So again, uh, anything that has visible soil on it needs to be thrown away, cannot be reused. And again, if you're wiping something, you're wiping your N95 mask off and it becomes wet, it can no longer be used as well. 
Okay, Brandon's listening in. He has a question on firefighters returning to work. There are a few departments allowing firefighters to come back to work while wearing a mask as long as they remain asymptomatic. What are your feelings on this? So this is Matt. You know, this is a really good question, Brandon. And I think um, there, the answer really lies in a couple different issues. First and foremost, it's going to depend largely upon staffing and resources and um, and how much of your department staff is decimated or affected by this at any one point in time. Um, so we are in a disaster, and we have to we have to adjust accordingly. Um, but concretely saying. Um, if, if they're wearing a mask and they're able to adhere to the CDC recommendations, that's probably okay. Um, I think it's important, to, if you go back to that slide uh, that we had up earlier, where we show the return to work criteria, is they do need to have um, improvement in cough and be fever-free for at least those past 72 hours, and it should be no sooner than seven days after onset. That's the CDC recommendations, and that's what I would advocate for. Um, but we also know that we're dealing with some very unprecedented times here right now. And so uh, we have to we have to ad adopt and uh, adapt those guidelines as, much, as best as possible. Thank you, Matt. Uh, another hot topic right now is ibuprofen. We have a question on that. I've had several people ask me about ibuprofen, that uh, ibuprofen makes the disease progress faster and that the virus thrives with ibuprofen. Do you have any um, information or, or um, comments on that? Hi, this is Asa again. Um, I could try to handle that question. So great question, definitely hot topic. Uh, I'll provide you with the most up-to-date stuff that, that we're certainly aware of now. So first of all, the question is predicated on the fact that coronavirus can bind to and again use that ACE2 receptor, uh, which is expressed on multiple cells, epithelial cells of the lungs, the intestines, the kidneys, and various blood vessels. Um, the concern is that this ACE2 receptor is upregulated in the setting of taking certain medications like NSAIDs, uh, and therefore having overexpression or upregulation of ACE2 could facilitate uh, infection with the COVID-19. So with all of that said, in short, there is no evidence right now that NSAIDs uh, could either make the virus worse or make you more susceptible to it. There has been no studies out there demonstrating this, uh, and there is no evidence definitively suggested at this time. Uh, what I've been seeing in sort of clinical practice is that people are preferentially using acetaminophen, Tylenol, as an antipyretic to deal with fever, uh, and then sort of secondarily using other cooling methods like cooling blankets or ice packs to help bring down uh, someone's fever. Um, I think some of this stems from the fact that this question has been out there, but as of current, there is no definitive evidence. There is no study suggesting that NSAIDs are harmful. Thank you, Asa. And um, going back to the topic of masks, uh, another question from Judy here. Um, masks for the general public have been discussed often, but even if the experts begin to agree about their value, there are not enough masks to go around. So would a bandana or a fabric mask, as, uh, as you see on the internet, be better than nothing? So this is Matt. Um, Judy, it's a great question. And, and uh, as you alluded to, it's on a lot of people's minds. Um, does it fall into the category of better than nothing um, is probably the best answer we can give. There's limited data about the use of non-mask material to serve in a mask. 
uh, capacity, and the, the results of that come out of the occupational health literature, and it's it's very it's highly variable. So it's going to depend upon the equipment, the materials, and a variety of other things. Um, my biggest concern would be that someone would wear one of these masks and be given a false sense of security. Um, so um, so I, I would I would be very cautious with doing that. Uh, it pro all we could probably say is it might be some some better, something better than nothing, but but I, I wouldn't uh, necessarily um, rely heavily on that until um, we have more data. It's actually a good segue into the next question we have here. Um, what is the latest science uh, that you've heard on whether or not the virus may be airborne? Uh, I this is Asa again. Uh, I think this is continuously being sort of bounced back and forth. I think the majority are saying this is a droplet-borne uh, virus. It's spread via larger droplets than being airborne. Uh, however, you know, there's certainly nothing definitive or 100% conclusive that's saying it is not airborne. And obviously, due to the risk of transmission of this virus, if we are able to maintain airborne precautions, uh, in the setting of obviously being good stewards of our PPE, then uh, we are and we should continue to do so. Uh, that, of course, goes with the caveat that if you are doing procedures that could aerosolize a droplet particle, for example, nebulizers, uh, doing any procedure to the airway, then that really becomes important in terms of maintaining strict airborne PPE. Uh, here's a question about the pneumonia vaccine from Ellen. Uh, are those who have had the pneumonia vaccine less likely to fall ill from COVID-19? Uh, hi, Ellen. Uh, it's Asa. I could try to answer this question for you. So when we talk about the pneumonia vaccine, we're usually talking about pneumovax, uh, usually the strep pneumonia. Um, th there's no evidence that I'm aware of that suggests that those that have gotten that vaccine uh, are less likely to fall ill for COVID-19. Uh, by the same token, uh, if you have gotten the vaccine, uh, there's certainly a chance that one could develop COVID-19 in a secondary superinfection from a bacterial process like strep pneumonia. Uh, and in that case, that would certainly protect one from developing that secondary bacterial infection, which would uh, make the person even more severely ill and likely increase their mortality. When taking a temperature, what, uh, here's a question, what are the standards for establishing an accurate febrile temperature uh, taken by mouth, temporal, or uh, by ear? So this is Matt. You know, it's a, it's a neat question. I think, um, first of all, uh, two points. One is, is we're going to use the definition in our patients of a temperature of greater than 100.4. Um, the CDC website does talk about 100.0 for healthcare providers, so a little being a little more conservative. Uh, in terms of the means of measuring that temperature, I think um, the the three mentioned uh, the three ways you've mentioned are, are not are not wrong. You could do orally, which is probably going to be uh, the most accurate, but there is some literature that says the temporal temperature, as long as it's taken over the temporal artery, is pretty good. And the same for the ear. Um, I think what I would want everyone to take away from this, though, is, is we're looking for the abnormal. And this becomes really important, not just for our patients, but we're looking as well for our coworkers and our colleagues, because many, many places have appropriately begun implementing screening for, their, uh, for our EMS clinicians. Um, so, so whichever route you're going to use, uh, if it's an abnormal, it needs to be confirmed. And, we, you know, we should, we should treat it as we should consider it as real. Okay, we have a question here from Barry on doffing orders. What are specific doffing order recommendations? Uh, 
Hi, Barry. Uh, it's Asa. I could try to answer that question for you. So this is this is important. And before sort of getting into it, I think this is something that must be practiced. And certainly the first time you do this should not be with a patient. Uh, and it should be practiced over and over because, as Dr. Levy said earlier, this is really where uh, healthcare professionals or EMS clinicians uh, could become infected by when they doff their gear. So first and foremost, uh, the first thing you want to do is clean your outer layer of gloves with an alcohol-based hand sanitizer before doing anything else. At that point, uh, you should be wearing a gown, right? And you're going to remove the gown and outer pair of gloves by really pulling away from your body and sort of rolling that gown into a ball, again, away from your body so there are no loose parts uh, that could come back and contaminate you. So once you have done that, you're going to dispose of that in the trash can and you're going to clean if you're wearing an inner layer of gloves, that inner layer of gloves, again, with alcohol-based hand sanitizer. At that point, you're going to remove your face shield, again, remembering the important concept of trying not to touch the front of the face shield because that's where a lot of the contaminants going to be, um, and move, grabbing by the sides and, again, moving it forward uh, away from the body. Once that's complete, uh, you're going to, again, uh, use alcohol-based hand sanitizer to sanitize your hands. Uh, and at that point, you're going to want to step outside the patient room uh, there are some cases where in various hospitals there may be an anteroom where some of this could occur, but in most cases there isn't. So in this case, after getting rid of your gown and your face mask, you're moving outside the room. You've again Purelled your hands, and at this point you're going to remove your N95 mask. Uh, again, being very careful not to touch the front of the mask where a lot of the contaminant is, and using the straps to pull up and away from your nose and your mouth. Um, and again, once that's off, you're going to, again, uh, hand sanitize with alcohol-based uh, hand sanitizer and remove your outer layer of gloves. And once that's complete, you're going to then go to the sink and wash your hands with soap and water. Uh, I know there's a lot to that. Um, hopefully, that's clear. Uh, and again, just to reiterate two important points, every time you touch a surface, every time you do something, you hand sanitize. And to make sure that we are practicing this over and over. And then I would say, lastly, if there's anybody that we would call a safety officer or somebody to watch you do the doffing procedure, that's important as well, because this individual may be able to stop you before you do something that is unsafe and potentially contaminate yourself. Thank you, Asa. Uh, Rachel has a question on dehydration. What amount of fluid is acceptable in a dehydrated patient and should it be controlled fluid administration or wide open? Also, is isotonic fluid better, or uh, which one is recommended? Uh, good question. Tricky question. So, you know, we're really balancing um, a, a you want to resuscitate the patient, but you certainly don't want to over-resuscitate the patient. Because as we know, a lot of these patients are progressing fairly quickly to ARDS. And the sort of the, one of one of the cornerstones of management to ARDS patients is we want to run them drier. We don't want them to be volume overloaded on top of having uh, the infiltrates from the ARDS picture. So generally speaking, I would not sort of routinely make it our practice to bolus these patients. I think we want to be thoughtful. We want to be conservative about our fluid management in these patients uh, because of the progression to ARDS. Uh, if we are giving fluids, um, our typical crystalloids, saline, or lactated ringers 
uh, are certainly appropriate, but again, uh, it needs to be given in a measured amount, um, and you don't want to just overload these patients and, and run them wide open. Interesting question from Brian here about eating in the firehouse together. In the firehouse, is it okay to be cooking food and eating together as a crew, or should we be bringing in our own food from home and keeping distance from each other? Also, any uh, thoughts on donated food? Thanks, Brian. Uh, really, really good and interesting question. Uh, this is Matt. I'll just try to unpack that and answer as quickly as possible. Um, it's probably okay to be cooking food. Uh, we, we haven't seen any any hardened guidelines against doing that, but good hygiene prevails. Um, you know, guys, if we think about this as a respiratory virus and and all of the good hygienic principles that we'd want to follow, um, just like if someone were to, you know, were to be sick in the firehouse, it's the same idea. So so uh, common sense has to prevail here. Uh, we do want to try to do our very best, particularly in, in, you know, during in crew quarters and in the firehouse to practice as much social distancing as possible. So, you know, it's very traditional in the firehouse for everyone to be around the kitchen table. And, um, and and we have to kind of spread out there, uh, try to maintain social distance as much as possible. Donated food, donated items, another very good uh, thought or question from one of our listeners. Um, I, you know, my perspective and the perspective from the experts we've talked to on this is that foods need to be individually wrapped. Um, so uh, having a, a box or a, a tray of cookies out um, is, is probably not uh, the, the right thing to do, and I would, I would discourage that. If they're individually wrapped, I think it's a little bit safer. Next one is very topical as well, and it's being batted around in the news. Um, if a patient is diagnosed with COVID-19 and recovers, are they then immune from future infection? Uh, this is Asa. I'll try to handle that question. So I don't know if we really know yet. In fact, I don't, I don't think we really do. Um, and I know we're actively trying to work on trying to figure out if this is the case. And some of this, again, is going to depend on the degree of the patient's illness. And I suspect that those that had a, either an asymptomatic uh, infection or uh, a very minor infection, uh, that answer may differ from those that had a more severe course. So I would say a great question and stay tuned for uh, more answers on that. If a vaccine is developed, uh, here's a question. Will first responders get the vaccine first if it is developed? Yeah. So, hey, this is Matt. Um, it, we would certainly hope so. And, and you know, looking at the, the prioritization in society of healthcare workers and first responders, um, we would probably naturally fall to the top of that list uh, because of our critical roles. Um, I think, uh, you know, Asa mentioned this both in the webinar and a few moments ago, we're still a little ways out from, from, from the mass production of a vaccine. Um, so um, uh, that, that is something that we'll be uh, hopefully discussing as, as more information is available. Um, but we would certainly hope that our first responders, law enforcement, healthcare workers on the front lines uh, would be prioritized as those who need to receive it first. And as a good follow-up to that, how do, how do we keep responders safe in a siege-type response, such as a wildfire campaign, hurricane, or other disaster incident that requires multiple operational periods? So um, this is Matt. I can start this one off. I don't know, Asa, if you want to follow up, if you have anything to add. But from my perspective, I, I think um, the, the premise of, of both on-scene rehab 
were um, incidents that span multiple operational periods and dealing with um, all the hygienic principles that we need to try to maintain while we have large numbers of responders on scene uh, will become only that much more amplified. Uh, for those of us um, that have dual roles and may also serve as incident safety officers or serve in a safety officer capacity from an ICS structure, I think that, ro that role um, only gets a little more complicated now. Um, it, it is doable, um, but the same principles that we're applying uh, now are going are to already um, apply in, in that scenario. Yeah, so um, just kind of piggybacking off of that, uh, I, I would agree, Matt, with what you said. The only thing I guess maybe adding is that people should really self-monitor um, routinely for, for symptoms. So again, the viral URI symptoms, diarrhea, considering doing daily temperature checks, um, so if, if we're having to respond to multiple different things or we're there for a prolonged period of time at the sort of first inclination that somebody may uh, be infected, uh, you know that and you're able to let the appropriate people know so you could at that point be, be isolated. And it looks like we have about five minutes or so left for questions. Thanks for all the questions coming in. Uh, let's talk a little bit about ventilator splitting, something in the news too. Is ventilator splitting an option in dealing with critical COVID-19 patients? Shouldn't we worry about the variance in lung compliance among these patients as well as the high potential of cross-flowing of the virus between patients? Uh, I, I could try um, to handle that question. Yeah. Great. I mean, yeah, great, great question, complicated question. Um, so first and foremost, I would say if you're going to have to do ventilator splitting, uh, you should try to do it on patients that would require and need the same ventilator setting. So FiO2, PEEP, and that nature. Um, sort of general guidelines, I would do a pressure cycle ventilation. Um, I would try to maintain, you know, lower driving pressures in these patients. So, you know, less, I would say, than 15. And again, our driving pressures are plateau pressure that you get on the vent minus the peep. Um, and, you know, still using protective lung ventilation strategies. So I'd say, you know, in summary, uh, using patients that otherwise meet the same pathophysiologic uh, standpoint, um, trying to keep our driving pressures low, using pressure cycle ventilation uh, and maintaining protective lung ventilation are important strategies for this. Matt, I don't know if you had anything further to add. Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a it really is emblematic of of just the level of a situation that we're dealing with right now, everybody. Um, there were some research and some papers that came out about this in a conceptual model a few years ago, uh, and and as Isa has already alluded to, some of the physiologic parameters you have to consider. Uh, there are places that are actually doing this right now. Um, certainly not the ideal, um, but in a disaster setting, we, we, you know, we're doing the greatest good for the greatest number. So. It's it's uh it's a very tricky and complicated answer. Um, yeah, that's all. Um, and then with regard to health professionals being tested, why shouldn't all health professionals be tested to ensure they are not infected, not only for their own good, but to potentially cut the transmission chain of disease to other colleagues and patients? Sure. So this is this is Matt. Um, I, I think the answer to this is going to change over time, and that 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 window of time may change in the next weeks to months to come. Uh, number one, as more testing becomes available, uh, that that will change our access to the testing and our ability to 
to get these tests done more rapidly as, as newer tests come online. Uh, likewise, I think the second part of that question is, as we have more advanced tests that are able to uh, help us understand if we actually have immunity to this or if we have the antibodies to COVID-19, that will probably also help inform that discussion. Um, just like now you get tested for, you, you know, you get tested for measles or tested for varicella. Um, so in the future, as, as the sophistication evolves for us to be able to do that, uh, I could see that happening. Right now, uh, we're still not quite there yet on a large scale implementation, um, but it's definitely, uh, definitely something that we're watching very closely because I think it does show promise. Okay, just a couple more minutes here. We had a question on BVM use in cardiac arrest. Do you believe most EMS agencies will be removing BVM use from cardiac arrests until further notice? Uh, instead, just apply a non-rebreather at 15 liters per minute rather than BVM with a high O2. It, would that be sufficient enough to oxygenate the patient? Well, so this is Matt. Um, I'm trying to answer that quickly in the remaining time. I, you know, I, it, sufficiency versus safety versus efficacy, um, you know, versus overall survival for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, where all those circles overlap is, I think, a very complicated situation that we have. Um, certainly, it's very reasonable uh, at this moment in time to do the non-rebreather, at, at least at a minimum, until we can get definitive airway secured uh, with a in, patient intubated. Um, so um, whether it gets fully removed or not, uh, there are systems that are doing that now. I would have a hard time faulting them because of, of the landscape we're dealing with. Okay, that's going to uh, about do it for our time today. Dr. Matt Levy, Dr. Asa Margolis, uh, we can't thank you enough for, for spending the time today, keeping up with all the questions and, uh, and the information as it unfolds by the minute. And also thanks for putting together this presentation on a very tight turnaround. I want to give you the opportunity. Do you have any uh, closing comments before we, before we call it a day? So thank you guys so much for, for having us and for tuning in and listening. Uh, we are EMS physicians, ER docs, uh, paramedics, uh, and so um, we are, are, we're all in this mess together. Um, we are stronger and smarter together. Um, please take care of yourselves, but also everybody, our families are really scared right now, so please take care of them. If you have any downtime, spend it with your families. Uh, they are truly petrified about what's going on, and so, um, so reach out. Uh, no one's in this alone. That's all I have. Asa, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, well said, as always, Matt. Um, I just want to thank EMS World for having us. It's, it was a real privilege and, and pleasure to be here um, and to be able to answer these questions. Thank you, everybody, for asking such excellent uh, and important questions. And uh, hopefully we're able to provide you guys with some additional information and you found this useful. Thank you both very much. One more time, we would like to thank Boundtree for sponsoring and helping bring this presentation to you. Uh, we've had a lot of questions about recording this webinar. We have recorded it. It will be archived soon. You'll be able to find that at emsworld.com slash webinars. Um, also, I would encourage our audience to keep an eye on that page regularly. We are rolling out uh, very timely presentations on the coronavirus uh, response weekly, sometimes even more frequently than that. Our next webinar is going to be this Friday, April 3rd at 1 p.m. Eastern. The topic is the, corona, uh, the coronavirus and your social health how to manage stress and your relationships. So please join us for that. I want to, uh, again, thank all of our listeners for joining us today and, uh, and for what you do every day in the, in the field. We, uh, we appreciate it. Stay safe, stay positive, 
and uh, thank you for what you do. And uh, we'll talk to you on the next webinar. Dr. Levy, Dr. Margolis, thank you so much again, and I hope you have a great day. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.